Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the life of Abraham with James Jordan, and here he's going to be talking through Genesis chapters 16 and 17, and the theme of cutting off the flesh. Do be sure to check out those links down there in the show notes. We wanted to call your attention today to a couple of online courses, our Theopolis workshops, that are coming up this spring. First, we have a course with Peter Lightheart as he walks through the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and a course titled The Death and Resurrection of David. This course will run for two hours on Saturdays from February 18th through March 25th, and there's a link for more information and registration in the show notes. The next online workshop is taught by Alistair Roberts and James B. John and is going to be on biblical numerology. That course is going to run from March 25th through April 29th and will also be a six-week long course for two hours on Saturdays. For more information about these courses and to register, there are links down there in the show notes for you. As always, we want to thank you so much for listening and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapters 16 and 17 in the life of Abraham. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, and we thank you for calling us into your kingdom. We thank you for making us an army, and we thank you for the opportunity to serve. We ask now that your Holy Spirit would be with us to encourage us, and also to help us to understand more fully your revelation, that it might help us to understand your world better and enable us to function as Christians within it. We pray this in the name of Christ our King. Amen. We come today to Genesis 16 and 17, which has to do with cutting off the flesh. Let's quickly review, as your notes say, the story of Abram seems to come in two chapter units, and that's just the way the later people in the Bible divided the Bible up into chapters, later people in the Bible. Later in history, after the Bible was written, the Bible was divided up into chapters and verses. and. Actually, as we've studied the narratives, we've seen that there are unified stories here. Chapters 12 and 13 start with Abram going down into the land of Canaan, settling there, and then going down into Egypt, and then coming back out and resettling in the land of Canaan and reestablishing the altars. It's one long story, which unfortunately has this chapter division in the middle of it. And chapters 14 and 15 are the same. Chapter 14 has to do with an attack on the land, Abram's actual dominion over the land, and then the fear that comes to him, because, after all, when you defeat Chedor Laomer, the most powerful king in the world, you're afraid he might come back. And so God comes to him and says, I'll be your shield, and I'm going to take care of you, and I'll make a covenant with you, and you will be protected. And just to review the complicated material we saw last week, essentially what God said was, may I be destroyed and devoured by the birds if I fail to keep this covenant with Abram. These animals were torn in half and God himself passed between the parts of the animals and God said, may I be destroyed if I fail to keep a covenant with Abraham. And that makes it very sure, you see, very sure and very certain. And a second idea that was there was just as the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters of the first creation and began to make the world out of the formless and void and dark material that was there, so 
in the middle of the night when it's very dark and all these dead animals are there, the Spirit of God moves over it and there's a new creation. And there's an idea here of a new creation, a new land, a new world that's going to be given to the seed of Abram. Abram will get to participate in the blessings of it, but it's actually the seed of Abram who is going to possess it and bring it to its perfection. Today we come to chapters 16 and 17, which again are unified. And the unifying link is the material about the age of Abram and the birth of Ishmael and the relationship of Ishmael to Isaac. And both of these chapters have to do with the cutting off of the flesh. And we'll see as we go that they sort of make one story. And then when we get to chapter 18 and 19, we get another unified story. And today we'll take time permitting both 16 and 17. And in an outline, what we'll see is that the Egyptian, Hagar, seeks to keep the supposed seed, Ishmael, for herself, instead of reckoning Ishmael as Sarai's child, which was Hagar's sin. And secondly, we'll see that God promises covenant blessings to the Egyptian's child and to the Egyptians if they ally themselves with Sarai. And that'll be the second half of chapter 16. And then in chapter 17, we'll see this theme of cutting off of the flesh and resurrection, where everything is made new. Everybody's given a new name, and the world is made new. So let's look first of all at the birth of Ishmael and its consequences in chapter 16, 1 to 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him none, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. We can imagine she picked up Hagar when they were down in Egypt a few chapters back. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall be built from her. That's literally what it says. It's the idea of building up her house. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, and after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. So it's a second marriage here for Abram. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you, I gave my maid into your bosom. But when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your hand. Do what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. This passage fits into a wider theme in the book of Genesis, and to understand it, we need to take a look at that theme. It goes back to the Garden of Eden, where there were two trees. There was the tree of life, and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam was told, of every tree you may freely eat, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That meant he was invited to eat of the tree of life. He'd also been told, back in Genesis 1, that God made every tree for man to eat of. So he knew that the prohibition on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was temporary. So what Adam was commanded to do was to trust God and wait patiently for the day when God would allow him to eat of the tree of knowledge. Go ahead and eat of the tree of life because you need life and wait patiently until God gives you the tree of knowledge. God says every tree is made for man to eat. And he says to Adam, you may eat freely of every tree except the tree of knowledge. 
So Adam can deduce from that, someday I'll get to eat of the tree of knowledge, but I must wait patiently. Forbidden fruit and the sin of seizing the forbidden fruit is the sin of impatience. And that's why the book of Hebrews says that the true mark of saving faith is patience. That's why it says it about Abram, that Abram was patient and waited his 400 years to receive the promised land. Well, this theme of having to choose between immediate pleasures and long-term dominion continues in the book of Genesis. When the curse was put on the ground, God said, thorns and thistles the ground will yield as well as good plants. And the immediate fulfillment of that, we don't often see it this way, but it is the immediate fulfillment of that, is in the birth of Cain and Abel. Cain was the thorn. Abel was a good plant. And throughout the Bible, unrighteous people are called thorns and brambles, and righteous people are called good plants, olive trees, cedar trees, and other things. And so the immediate fulfillment of the thorns and thistles is in the two sons, two trees. And we can trace it on down. Isaac had two sons, didn't he? Esau and Jacob. And which one did he prefer? He preferred the wrong son. This is just like two trees and two fruits. And remember what Isaac particularly liked about Esau was that Esau provided him with savory meat. It was the food that Esau provided that Isaac liked. So this theme is carried through the theme of impatience and choosing the wrong way to deal with the problem and not waiting. That's what's going on here. God has said to Abram that he's going to have children. And Sarai says, well, since I haven't had any, and I'm getting pretty old here, let's go ahead and have a surrogate mother, Hagar. Another theme that comes in here is what the Bible says about Adam and Eve. Throughout the New Testament, and it's implied in the Old, we're told that Eve did not sin self-consciously when she ate the forbidden fruit, but that she was deceived. The woman being deceived ate the fruit, but Adam ate with full consciousness of what he was doing. Now, the gist of that, that inverse an awful lot of popular superstition that women are the ones who lead men into sin. It's not true. The Bible says exactly the opposite. Adam knew because Adam was alive when God told him, don't eat of the forbidden fruit. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge. God had said that to Adam. Then God created Eve. But God didn't say it to Eve. Adam knew and Eve didn't. Eve was deceived and tricked. Adam was not deceived and tricked. Adam had greater knowledge and greater culpability. There is a double standard in the Bible. And the double standard means that the boy is more responsible than the girl. And the same thing comes here. Sarai is actually acting in faith. She has a desire to please God and a desire to see the seed born into the world. She's acting according to faith but not according to knowledge. She's acting in accordance with customs that were in the ancient world, but she's not acting according to the law of God. And what the Bible always implies is that the man, particularly a man like Abram, who's supposed to know a lot, is supposed to know better. And Abram should have said, no, that's not the way to do it. Let's wait and see what God has to say to us. But Abram didn't do that. Just as Adam did not protect Eve from the serpent's attack, so Abram fails to protect Sarai from her well-intended but mistaken plan. And so, child is born, 
who is born before the circumcision and name change that's in the world. Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai, which is usually a good thing to do, unless you have particular knowledge that indicates differently. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. Now what was supposed to happen here is described for us in chapter 30, verse 3. This is when Rachel saw that she had no children, and she gave her servant Bilhah to Jacob. And she said, Here is my maid Bilhah, go into her that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. Now what happened in the ancient world was if you had a surrogate mother, when the child was born, when the child came out of the womb, it was taken and put on the knees of the adopted mother, symbolically as if it had come from her womb, since the baby comes out of the womb and past the knees. So the baby is taken out of the surrogate mother and given to the legal mother. And so the baby would come from Bilhah and be taken immediately and put on Rachel's knees, and it would be Rachel's baby. And that's what was supposed to happen here. When Ishmael was born, it was supposed to be born from Hagar's womb, but immediately taken and given to Sarai as Sarai's child. But that didn't happen. Sarai did not go with the expected custom and did not give the child to Sarai, but despised her. Now, just a comment here on the fact that Hagar was an Egyptian. The Egyptian is a constant theme in the story of Abraham. They went down into Egypt and were delivered out from it. Now we have Hagar, the Egyptian, and her half-Egyptian child who is going to be saved by God and given grace by God. And later on we'll see Abram interacting with the Philistines. And then Isaac will interact with the Philistines. The Philistines were Egyptians. The genealogy of Genesis 10 tells us that very clear. They were descendants of Mizraim. And when the Philistines make these covenants with Abram and with Isaac, it has to do with the relationship of the priestly people to the salvation of the world. And finally, at the end of the book of Genesis, we come to Joseph, and Joseph goes and delivers Egypt from a horrible situation, and everything indicates that the Egyptians at that time are bowing the knee to the God of Joseph and rejoice in all the good things that happened to God's people, which is their salvation. I bless those that bless you, and I curse those that curse you, was the Abrahamic promise. So this is traced through, and we'll watch for more Egyptians. Here we just want to note that Hagar was an Egyptian. Her child and how he's dealt with is a picture of how Israel was to relate to the nations and grant salvation to them. Well, in verses 4 and 5, we read about sight. He went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Sight has to do with judgment. I notice I haven't been keeping up with your notes here, but the birth of Ishmael and its consequences, the basic problem was impatience. And marrying Hagar is equivalent to taking the forbidden fruit. And in verses 4 to 6, sight has to do with judgment. In fact, it's repeated five times. And five is the number of house building, as we've seen. And since Sarai was trying to build her house through her maid, it's probably deliberate that the word sight or eyes or the equivalents occur five times. Sight has to do with judgment, as in Genesis 1, God saw what he had made and it was good. Evaluation. And Hagar judges unrighteously. She despises her mistress. She does not honor Sarai's faith. 
her attempt to please God, and she does not honor Sarai's position as her superior. And Sarai rebukes Abram. She says, look, apparently we made a mistake, but you should have known better. And you've not been defending me. You've been letting Hagar despise me. May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maiden into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. By making her a wife, even though a second wife, you're backing her up. You're so happy about the fact that you at last have a baby in the oven that you're allowing her to despise me and is rebellious. And may the Lord judge between you and me. And, of course, Abram realizes that Sarai is right. And he hearkens to the words of his wife, and he backs her up. He says, well, you're right. You are the superior. Your maid is in your power. Do what is good in your sight. Don't let her judge you. You judge her. Then it says that Sarai treated her harshly. That's a mistranslation. Commentators like to believe that Sarai was mean and nasty here. I think that she was trying to serve God as best she knew. Actually, the word translated harshly comes from the Hebrew meaning to humble, to cause, to bow down, to put in her place. And all it means is, now that Abram was backing Sarai up, she just put the other woman in her place. Look, you're my servant. You're not in the same category as me. I'm superior. And so, Hagar fled. She fled rather than submit to Sarai's authority. There's one other point to be made here, and this is just a parenthesis. But when you read the newspapers, you'll see all the dynamics that are here showing up in the surrogate motherhood crises. Every time a surrogate mother comes along and has a baby for somebody else, there's the potential of just the conflict that's recorded here. And the Bible does not seem to be terribly favorable to this idea of surrogate motherhood. At least the Bible in this passage warns us of the dangers of it, the terrible dangers of it. All right, now we come to the second section, and I'm calling that an exodus. An exodus for Ishmael, verses 7 to 16. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore. This is between Israel and Egypt, and it's in the wilderness. These locations are important. By the way, this is the first time the angel of the Lord has ever showed up in the Bible. The same angel of the Lord that led Israel out of Egypt. And God said, my name is on this angel, and he will lead you out. You follow him, and he will lead you into the land of Canaan, and he will conquer Canaan for you. This is the first time in the Bible that the angel of the Lord, the captain of the Lord's host, appears. So again, we're in Exodus language here. And the angel said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, not Hagar, independent person. Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of of my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, and now here's covenant language, I will greatly multiply your seed so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, always two speeches, almost always in the Bible when God speaks to man, it comes this way. God says something and then it says, God said again. It's a two witness idea. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you're with child, you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears. Because the Lord has heard your affliction. Reminds you of what it says in the book of Exodus, that God heard the affliction of the people in Egypt. That's what God says from the burning bush to Moses. 
And he will be a wild donkey of a man. Sounds bad to us, but that's actually a good thing in the ancient world. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will live before the face of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, Thou art a God who sees. Again, the idea of judgment. God is the judge. For she said, Have I remained alive after being seen by him? God judged me, and yet I live. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. Behold, it's between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now if we look over at Galatians chapter 4, we find a commentary on this that illuminates it for us and helps us to understand it better. St. Paul says in Galatians 4:21 and following, Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. The bondwoman is his Hagar. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, that is, before circumcision, before the flesh is cut off. And the son of the free woman was born through the promise. We'll get to the promise in chapter 17. God comes and promises a miracle a miracle of resurrection to Sarai's dead womb and says you will have a son. So one is born in the flesh before circumcision and the other is born through the promise. This contains an allegory. For these are two covenants, one from Mount Sinai bearing children who are slaves. She is Hagar. This Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children but... The Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Sarah, break forth and shout. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. What Paul says is that if you read the Old Testament carefully, you'll see that Ishmael is like the old covenant church before the coming of Christ. And Isaac who is born on the other side of the change of names, on the other side of circumcision and cutting off the flesh, on the other side of resurrection, Isaac is like the church of the new covenant. If Ishmael is like old covenant Israel, born and sustained before the coming of the true seed, Isaac, Jesus, born and sustained before the circumcision of the world, which was the cross, and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., born and sustained before the giving of the new name, which is Christian. book of Acts says, from then on they were called Christians, not Israelites. That's what's going on here. And that's why this is an exodus. That's why exodus language is here. Being called back from being near Egypt, being visited in the wilderness and called back to the promised land by the angel of the Lord. There are exodus ideas here and blessings for Ishmael, even though Ishmael comes before the big change in history. You get the symbolism there, and I hope it's not too obscure. Paul says that Ishmael is like the old covenant, like Israel. Seems contradictory to us, but we have to keep these things parallel. Ishmael is born before 
the big transition that comes with circumcision in chapter 17. Isaac is born on the other side. The big transition that that symbolizes is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Israel is sustained by God by springs of water in the wilderness until that transition. And then you have Isaac, which is the church, coming on the other side. Ishmael, circumcision, Isaac. Old covenant, cross of Christ, church. That's the idea. That's the parallel. Now let's look at this in a little bit of detail as time permits. God pursues Hagar and Ishmael. He doesn't just let them go. If they were apostates leaving, fine. God never pursues Esau. We don't read that when Esau leaves, God pursues him or anything. But God actually pursues Ishmael twice. He pursues him again in chapter 21. In verse 7, we have the angel of the Lord, and I commented on that, that he is the one who leads in the Exodus. And they've gone down into the wilderness near Egypt, and there they come to a spring of water. And that's where God meets them, at a spring of water, and this spring is actually given a name that is the God who sees things. And these springs always indicate the blessing of God. Springs of water indicate the blessings of God. There was that spring of water in the Garden of Eden, and the rivers flowed out. And throughout the Bible, springs of water are the blessing of God. When the Jews came out of Egypt, they got out in the wilderness, they were thirsty, God opened up rocks, God gave them springs of water repeatedly. It's the blessings of God. It's a sign of the covenant and the Holy Spirit. If you were to study Genesis chapter 26, you'd see Isaac digging up one well of water after another and giving blessing to the people. So it's at a spring of water. And the angel says, you need to go back and submit to Sarai. I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai, says Hagar. The angel Lord says, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. And so salvation is offered to the Egyptians here. If they will submit to the priestly work of God's priestly nation, if they will be led religiously by Abraham and his seed, then they will be blessed. And that in a type is what's being pictured here. Verse 10, covenant blessings. Ishmael will not be the priestly people, Isaac will be, but he will get at a distance all the covenant blessings except that. His seeds will be multiplied and God will take care of him if he's faithful. Verse 11, God has heard. He says, the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child. You will bear a son. You will call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. That indicates that Hagar was praying to Abram's God. And God heard her prayer and answered it. More Exodus language here. And then the promises, which are kind of ambiguous. He will be a wild donkey of a man. That's not our idea of calling somebody blessed. You call somebody a jackass, they don't take it as a compliment. But in the ancient world, donkeys weren't regarded that way. People rode on them. Uh, Jesus rode on one coming into Jerusalem. It was a good thing to have your donkey. And this is kind of ambiguous. Donkeys can be rebellious or they can be good animal. They're not an abominable animal like the pig. They're not sacrificially acceptable like the sheep. But they're a good animal. And so there's a promise here that he'll be a worthwhile person. And then the blessing 
is given in two ambiguous statements. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. That can mean two things. Perhaps Ishmael is regenerate. And because he's a regenerate Christian man, the world hates him. And because he stands for the truth, his hand is against the world. Like us, we go out here and we stand against this abortion clinic. And Tyler doesn't like it. Are we Ishmael's? Are we those whom God has heard? That's what Ishmael means. Satan attacks us. So, our hand is against everyone. And it seems as if everyone's hand is against us from time to time. All right? That's a sign of faithfulness. Being an Ishmael whom God has heard. Or, see it's ambiguous. Maybe it's a sign of rebellion. Maybe Ishmael's a rebellious person who causes trouble and contention everywhere he goes. Maybe that's what it means. It's going to be up to Ishmael which side of that he wants to fall on. The promise is ambiguous. Then it says, he will live before the face of all his brothers. That's ambiguous too. Does that mean that he will live in their presence, in the presence of Isaac, near to Isaac in the sense that he is related to Isaac and worships the God of Isaac and allows Isaac to be his priest, dwelling in the tents of Shem, dwelling with his brother? Or it can mean he sets his face against Isaac and dwells over against him and sets a contention between himself and Isaac. The language can go either way. And that means basically it's up to Ishmael whether he wants this promise to be a blessing or a curse. Now, I will contend that Ishmael was at least personally a faithful man. We see him come to help bury Abraham. He comes and joins Isaac at the end of his life. We have no indication even on down through history, that the Ishmaelites ever continued to make war on Israel. Now, you get down to Jacob and Esau, it's a different picture. Esau and his people always made war on Israel. But at this point, God makes the effort to retrieve Ishmael and Hagar and brings them back and gives them good promises and opportunities. Finally, in verse 13, we see Hagar's repentance. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, Thou art a God who sees, for she says, Have I even seen here, lived here, after the one who saw me? What does that mean? It means God is the judge. Back here at the beginning of the chapter, Hagar made herself the judge. She despised her mistress in her sight. She thought she knew it all. But now she bows the knee. She says, Thou art a God who sees. You are the God who judges all things, and I'll submit to you. You tell me to go back to Sarai, and I will. And then she says, am I still alive? My translation is wrong. It says, have I even remained here after seeing him? should say, have I remained alive here after being seen by him? God has judged me, and yet I remain alive. There's an idea of resurrection there, and she marvels that she has passed through judgment unto salvation. Hagar no longer is the judge, but she submits to God's judgment. I have a question here. Was Ishmael saved by God? Let me give you a couple of verses you can look at. Chapter 17, verse 7. God says, The heart of the covenant is that I will be a God to you and to your seed after you. And chapter 21, verse 20, where it says concerning Ishmael that God was with the lad. Emmanuel, God with us. 
I think Ishmael was saved. But we will come back to Ishmael numerous times as we continue our study. Let's move on to chapter 17. The prefatory remarks, therefore, are the end of chapter 16. So Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. God hears. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. There's some unnecessary information here. We don't need to be told that Abram was 86 because we already know from the chronological data that we've been told how old Abram was. All we have to do is add the numbers up. So that raises a question. Why has the Holy Spirit given us this additional information about Abram being 86? It's to call attention to something in the text. Can anybody think of what it is? This is your quiz for today. The exegetical, homiletical question. The hermeneutical puzzle. Ishmael is 13 or 14. And what happens to boys around the age of 13 and 14? That's right. It was mouthed to me that they enter puberty. And so what is on Abram's mind now that Ishmael has gotten old enough to perhaps get married? Abram's thinking about multiplication, grandchildren. Let's read verses 1 to 8, and it will tell you what was on Abram's mind. Now when Abram was 99 and Ishmael was entering puberty, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to me, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be perfect or complete. Mature is actually the idea here. Obviously it means don't sin, but what God expects is maturity. And I will establish my covenant between me and you. I'll give it to you. I've already cut it and I'm going to give it to you and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face. As Abram's thinking about all these grandchildren. Ishmael is getting there. They married young in the ancient world, so we're not guessing here, or we're not guessing much. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer will your name be called Abram, high father, but your name will be Abraham, father of a multitude. For I will make you a father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Oh, look at all this stuff about multiplication. Grandchildren are in view here. It looks like the promise is beginning to be fulfilled. Multiplication. And God changes his name from Avram to Avraham. Just lengthens it out and makes it bigger and more glorious. Abram's mind was on grandchildren, and now his name is changed from high father to father of a multitude. And God says that nations and kings are going to come from him. And in verse 7, God says it's going to go on generation after generation. And Abraham believes all of this applies to Ishmael. And Abraham has a big surprise coming. I will give to you and to your seed after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So, Abraham and his seed, down through Jesus Christ, and now the whole world will be possessed by the seed of Abraham. Everything will be his. So that's the promise. 
Now, when we looked at chapter 15, we saw that God gives his word, and then God gives the seal. Just as in the worship service, we have the word and the sacrament, which is a seal. So God promised to Abraham at the beginning of chapter 15, and then Abraham said, How may I know? And God made a sacrifice, an oath to seal it. And we have exactly the same thing here. God gives the promise in verses 1 to 8, and God gives the seal in verses 9 to 14. Here we have another one of these chiastic structures. I've got it marked out here for you. Verse 10 talks about keeping the covenant. And at the end of the section, verse 14b, talks about breaking the covenant. And sandwiched in there are B and B prime, the flesh of the foreskin, C throughout all generations, and C prime, everlasting, and D, servants. The covenant is extended even to the servants, the adopted ones and the purchased ones. Let's look at that. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations, keeping and guarding the covenant. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between you and your seed after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. One who is home-born, remember that means adopted by the boring of the ear, an adopted son, or one who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your actual seed. A servant who is born in your house, that is, home-born, adopted, or who is bought with money, shall surely be circumcised. And thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off because he has broken my covenant. The structure here, and when we look at these chiastic structures, the Bible writers use this to highlight certain things, and usually what's highlighted is what's on the outside and what's in the center. The structure points to the missionary task. At the center of the chiasm is the inclusion of outsiders, the home-born servants who are adopted, and the purchased servants who are servants in the home, they are included. And at the outer edges of the chiastic structure is the admonition to guard the covenant, protect it, and not to break it. The covenant is circumcision. One thing that we notice in verse 10, this is my covenant. Every male among you shall be circumcised. This is very strong language. It associates the actual ritual seal of the covenant with the covenant itself in the strongest possible way. Now, on the one hand, this is the covenant, I will be with you and be your God. But on the other hand, this is the covenant, circumcision. Same kind of language is found in the New Testament. We're just not used to it. In 1 Corinthians 11.25, in this way, Paul says, the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So there's a sense in which the sacramental seals are the covenant. Similarly, Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood. It's this strong sense of is. It associates them so closely that the church dares not set them aside. We dare not be like Quakers or fall into the Quaker tendency of thinking that we can just dispense with the sacraments. We may not understand how they work. We understand 
that they don't work automatically in some magical sense, but we also know that God is said to do them and that when we do them, the covenant comes true for us. Now, there's some observations we want to make on this passage. The first one is the eighth day. You're circumcised on the eighth day. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised. Why the eighth day? Well, it's the beginning of a new week. A new week and a new world. The first week is wrecked because of Adam's sin. But a new creation gives us a new week and a new world. And so circumcision, a cutting off of the old world, the cutting off of the flesh and the defilement thereof comes on the eighth day and we have a resurrection and the beginning of a new week and a new world. We'll see the same idea at the end of this passage. The second observation we need to make is on propagation. Circumcision is performed on the organ of generation and it has to do with the propagation of the race. It's not the same as salvation. You could be saved without being circumcised. Melchizedek was. Abraham wasn't told to go out and find every believer in the ancient world and circumcise him. He wasn't told to go down to Salem and circumcise Melchizedek. Circumcision has to do with the seed and the priestly nation. It has to do with the office of being a priest. Now, in the New Testament, every believer is a priest. Man and woman, boy and girl, so we're all baptized. But in the Old Covenant, every believer wasn't a priest. Not in this sense. A priest was somebody who could come near to God on behalf of other people who couldn't come as near. In the New Testament, everybody can come into the holiest of all. But in the Old Testament, only the priest could come near to God. And if you weren't a priest, you had to give your sacrifice to the priest, and he took it on in and brought it near to God for you. And that's what Abraham and his seed, his descendants, were going to do. They were going to be the priestly nation. The Gentiles would bring their tithes and offerings to the Israelites, and the Israelites would take them on up to the Aaronic priests, and the Aaronic priests would turn them over to the high priest, and he would take them into the holiest of all. That's sort of the picture there. You've got to have these priests who minister for you, because you can't draw near yourself. Well, today everyone is baptized, and so everyone is a priest. It's important for us to see this because... We need to understand that God saved lots of people in the Old Testament. But the Bible focuses in on the seed people and the priestly people. And that's what circumcision had to do with. Another observation on this idea of propagation and the relationship to the seed is you notice that servants are deliberately incorporated here. You'll find later on in Genesis that 70 people from the loins of Jacob went down into Egypt. And yet, when they came out of Egypt, 215 years later, there were over 2 million of them. And no matter how many kids you have, you don't get there. But the fact is, you see, there were all these servants along with them. And the servants were brought in to the household. And we can actually, as we read through the life of Abraham, we'll see references to his many servants. And they were all brought in, and they stayed with the family. And by the time that Israel went down into Egypt, there were so many of them, but they had to be given the whole land of Goshen to dwell in. So then it's no problem if 200 years later, in spite of persecutions, in spite of massacres of the children, there's still two million of them, it becomes much more reasonable. So notice that the servants are incorporated. Servants are also circumcised, and they become Israelites. They intermarry, and there's no distinction anymore. 
Finally, we want to notice in verse 14, an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. That's actually the word that means castration in the Bible. The alternative to circumcision is castration. Circumcision is, in fact, a ceremonial castration. It means that you no longer have the power of the original creation. You confess that it's dead and needs to be cut off and God needs to give you new power and new strength to create the new world. But beyond that, it means that these are the alternatives. We either get into the new world and begin to bring about the new world through grace or we are totally eliminated from history. And that's what happens in the New Covenant as the Holy Spirit comes and makes history move even faster. Those who are faithful become more and more powerful and have more and more influence. And those who are unfaithful are eliminated from history. They're cut off. Their power is destroyed. Well, very briefly, let's look at the end of the passage, Resurrection and the New Covenant, or New Creation, verses 15 to 26. This is where Abram gets his big surprise. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah will be her name. Sarai means my princess. Sarah means princess. Abraham, she's not just going to be your princess anymore. She's going to be the princess for the whole world. She'll be the princess. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Big shock to Abram. What's going to happen to Ishmael that I have loved all these years and I have so many hopes for? Then I will bless her. And she will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come out of her. Uh Uh-oh. Abram suddenly realizes that all those promises that were made in the early part of the chapter were about somebody else. Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. God said, No, Sarah, the princess, your wife, shall bear you a son. You will call his name Isaac which means he laughs. Isaac means he laughs, or laughter. God's laughter, God's big joke in history. And there are many jokes that God plays. When things seem the darkest, that's when all of a sudden God turns the tables. When Jesus was crucified, Satan thought he'd won. He thought he'd won. The disciples were scattered. Herod and Pilate became friends on that day. It's amazing how people who hate each other become friends when they attack the church. Herod and Pilate became friends that day. Everything was in Satan's hand. And two days later, God's great joke. Surprise! This is not exactly a plug because most of you have skimmed it at least, but in the book of Judges, there are repeated things like this. Sudden reversals, where it looks as if everything is lost and suddenly God brings a big joke. Samson is the greatest trickster in the Bible. Samson is a big type of Jesus Christ for just this reason. He keeps doing funny things that throw the wicked into consternation. Well, that's what Isaac is. Isaac is God's big joke, his laughter. God says, I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his seed after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, will make him fruitful, multiply him exceedingly. This is all covenant language here. He will be the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. That is, he's going to carry the covenant. Ishmael will receive blessings by staying close to it, but Isaac will actually carry the covenant. 
I will establish it with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. Questions that you have in your notes here. What is the resurrection idea in verse 17? Well, the resurrection idea is that Sarah's dead womb will be made alive. She not only has been barren all these years, but she's now 90. She's past the time for women to be having children. So she is doubly incapable of having a child. Yet God will work a miracle and bring death into life. And, of course, the New Testament calls attention to this. It says that Abraham, who was nearly dead, was enabled to have a child. Now, commentators interpret that wrongly, some do, when they say that, well, he was 100 years old and it was kind of hard for him to make love to his wife at that point. But that's not true, because years after this happened, Abraham took another wife named Keturah and had six more children by him. So it's not talking about his physical prowess in Paul when it says that he was as good as dead. No, it means that he was not circumcised. It means he was still in the flesh. It means he was theologically and symbolically dead. And because they weren't circumcised and because they were in the flesh, they couldn't have any children. But now, the flesh is cut off and they're granted resurrection, and now, fruitfulness and blessing will come. Question says, what does Ishmael get? Ishmael gets all the blessings of the covenant. Ishmael gets all the blessings of the covenant. What extra thing does Isaac get? Isaac gets all the blessings of the covenant, and he also gets to administer the covenant. There's a difference between the two. See, Ishmael gets all the blessings of the covenant, except to administer it. Isaac gets to administer the covenant. And finally, what is indicated by Abram's being 99 years old? Well, 99 is almost 100, and 100 is two jubilees. Jubilees are 50 years long, and that's all told us in Leviticus 25. But the idea is the beginning of the third jubilee, the third day, the third day resurrection. And what is indicated by Ishmael's being 13 years old? Well, that's almost 14, and that's two weeks. And we come into the beginning of the third week. These are both resurrection ideas. Verses 22 to 26, When God finished talking with him, God went up from Abram, and Abraham took Ishmael his son and all the servants born in his house, that is, adopted ones, and those bought with money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. And Abraham was 99 years old. See, the text calls attention to it when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael was 13 when he was circumcised. In the very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael his son and all the men of his household who were home-born adopted or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. The idea is resurrection. All these different things. Change of name, third day, hundredth year, fourteenth year, eighth day, all resurrection ideas. And after this, Isaac can be born and the kingdom can go forward. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.